Well, good morning, church. It is so good to gather together here uh, live at our Malalu campus. And also, if you're joining us online, it is so good to connect with you here. And I'm so glad that you can be a part of our service here at True North. Now, of course, over the last couple of weeks, for those that have been here, we've been tracking with a series called Unbreakable. And we've been following the life of David, starting off with his anointing from Samuel. And then moving on last week, we looked at David and Goliath. And this week, I'm going to take you to a very different moment in the life of David. And the the whole idea and the reason we're following David's life comes from, from this kind of a thought as a follower of Jesus, that no matter the brokenness I experience in my own life, no matter the brokenness that I'm forced sometimes to walk through, I can still have unbreakable faith in who God is. Because there's a simple reality that my faith is not based on who I am or the situations that I'm facing. My faith is based on a certain name. And that name is unbreakable. And because that name is unbreakable, I can have unbreakable faith in the name of Jesus. So that's the heart behind this series. If you're joining us, uh, joining us fresh today, and uh, if you've been with us online, it's so good to continue in the series as well. Now, I want to take you back for a moment, just for a moment, to today. David and Goliath and touch on last week. And if you are watching online, I promise, I mean, I apologize. There is no skip, uh, skip the, um, I've lost the word, skip recap for everyone watching too much Netflix. No skip recap. You're getting the recap. Everyone here, you've got no choice. I'm letting you know what happened. So I have David having this incredible victory over Goliath. But there's something I observe about that picture, that it's a very public moment. David's there in front of all of the armies of Israel. He displays incredible courage, incredible, uh, an incredible heart of a servant, incredible faith in who God is. But everybody is watching him. He's in the light. He's in the middle of the valley in public view of everyone there. So for David, his victory over Goliath was very much a public victory. Now, I'm not suggesting if he was uh, completely by himself, he wouldn't have acted in that way. But it is worth noting that this was a very public victory in the life of David. Now, where we're going to come to today is a very private moment in the life of David. And in that private place, David's going to have a different kind of battle. But before we get there, let's connect the dots between David's defeat of Goliath and where we're heading in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So David, after defeating Goliath, unsurprisingly has a meteoric rise in fame and influence throughout Israel. Saul very quickly makes him a commander within his armies, and everything he does, he sees victory. God's hand is on his life, God is with him, and he has success after success after success. And he becomes a very famous man in Israel. Now, there was one fateful day in the midst of all of this excitement where a certain song started being sung throughout Israel. We don't know the melody. We don't know who started it. But here's the gist of it. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, this jingle eventually got to King Saul and it melted his brain. It completely messed him up. Now, who here has ever experienced jealousy before? Anyone? Anyone online you've ever experienced jealousy before? Give me a hand up emoji if you've experienced jealousy. Now, jealousy, I think unlike almost any other emotion, it has the capacity to make us go crazy, (laughs) to make our brains function in a way that they normally wouldn't. Now, for a lot of us, most of the time, we have some degree of self-awareness. We're aware of that, and we're able to moderate it and lean away from those feelings. So he goes a different route. He just fully leans into it. 
And in a remarkably short span of time, he goes from loving David to being jealous of David, to being fearful of David, angry towards David, hateful towards David, and then develops murderous intent towards him. All in a very quick sequence. And so David, who was Israel's champion, is now turned into Israel's outcast. Saul runs him out of his country, runs him away from his friends and family. And now David is a fugitive on the run living in the wilderness, scraping by, living in poverty. Now, so what's interesting to me in this moment in David's life, that this picture of where he's at is almost the furthest thing removed from the promises that God has for his life to be the anointed king of Israel. Here he is, a fugitive on the run. This had been going on for some time. And in 1 Samuel 24, we're going to see the crescendo between these two men as Saul continues to pursue David. So we're going to go into Scripture this morning, and we're ready to get into God's Word today. You're ready online, you're ready here in the building, let's do it. So, we'll have it up on the screens, and we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 24. Now, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engadi. It kind of sounds like a Star Wars desert, right? Like, I think it's Gedi, Jedi, not to be confused with Tatooine. Surely someone appreciates that reference. At least one senior pastor watching at home, am I right? In the desert of Engadai, so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Actually, I've got to pause here for just a moment. We hear here that David, he's got a posse with him. He's got men. Now, here's what happened. So David is anointed as the king of Israel. He's been driven out of Israel. His circumstances have just got all messed up. But there's something that I love about the picture from David's life here, is that God's anointing is on his life, and the situation he's in will never change that. So what happens is he's made an outcast on the run, and every other man in Israel who's on the margins, every other criminal that's been outcast, they rally towards David, and he becomes their leader, because God's hand of anointing to lead is on his life, and his situation, his circumstances, that doesn't matter. What matters is God's hand is on his life. You know, there's someone here today, I believe, all you need to hear is that, that God's hand on your life is not dependent on the current situation that you face. God's hand on your life is dependent on God's hand on your life. Can someone say amen to that? Because that's truth. And it's true in the life of David as it's true in your life as well. So the anointing carries over even into this broken situation. Then Saul in verse 3, he came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, I don't want to over explain this, but... But for a point of reference for the plot, it's important to understand what's going on. In this scenario, the cave, I'm sorry, ladies in the house, is Saul's bathroom. Okay, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. My apologies. Now, David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, in the first part of verse 4, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands to deal with as you wish. And actually, I want to pause right there. Everyone stop reading. Stop. I can tell if you're reading. I see reading. We're going to pause here for a moment. So here's the setup. David is way in the back of the cave. No one can see him. No one knows he's there. Saul comes in with his back to David and his men. And now David has a certain opportunity. Now, as we get to this point, 
it's important to highlight the current pressure that is being placed on David. Now, there's an internal pressure, an emotional pressure that's uh, surrounding things like anger, frustration, pain, because it's all because of Saul that David's life has been transformed from the hero of Israel to the fugitive of Israel. So David's carrying a full heart of emotion towards Saul, and it's putting pressure on him to act in a certain way as Saul comes into that cave. Also, there's David's men saying, this is it. This is the moment. This is God's deliverance. It's time to take Saul out. So there's an incredible amount of pressure being forced onto David to act in a certain way. You know, this moment in the cave is a revealer of David's character. And I want to show you something around character real quick. In fact, I was hoping, where's my friend Graham Keedy gone? How's your teeth situation? Can you lift something real quick? Can you, can you come and bring this whiteboard up? Sorry, I was trying to get... Oh, there's Keedy. Can we welcome Graham Keedy to the stage? He's going to help me bring a whiteboard up. It's, uh, could you just bring out that whiteboard for us? If you, if you don't know Graham Keedy, he's part of the team here at True North, helps out with production and all manner of other things, I'm sure. Uh, could I have the white side, please? Be- beautiful. Thank you, Graham. You're the man. Actually, can I have it over here? I think... Uh, Sorry, I'm being a little bit um, needy, aren't I? And my word's not yours. Thanks, Graham. Now, can I, can I show you something around character really quick? So this moment in the cave for David is an important revealer of character, but it's also an important former of character. Now, let me show you something around character real quick. If I can get the lid off. So if I think about who I am as an individual, let's say I'm this nice sphere. Not bad, right? A little bit oblong. Uh, but I want to talk about this. This is me, and my character is going to be expressed in this space. Now, at the top, I have what I'm going to call my public character. Now, if we think of the life of David, his encounter with Goliath, that was a public moment. His character was expressed in a very public way, his character to serve, to be courageous, to be faithful, all in a very public way. Now, to put it this way, my public character, your public character is who I am, who you are, when you know other people are watching you. Everyone follow so far? This is who you are when you know you're being watched. Not just you think you're being watched, but you absolutely know you're being watched. But then there's a deeper part of who we are, in the deeper basements of the soul. And we're going to call that our private character. You guessed it. So there's this deeper part of who, me, who I am. Now, to simply describe this, my private character, the deeper aspect of who I am, is who I am when I know nobody else is watching. Yeah, you're familiar with these concepts? You've probably thought about them before, heard about them before. Now, I want to give us a picture here. For most of us, there's probably a difference between our public character and our private character. Now, the degree of difference between those two aspects of who I am, who I am and how I operate, how I respond to situations, how I treat people when I know I'm being watched, and the difference between how I treat people when I know I'm not being watched, how I respond to situations when I know I'm not being watched, the difference between those two things I'm going to call integrity today. 
And I know we can use these terms in a couple of different ways, but for the sake of today, let's call the difference between that. I think that was supposed to be an R. It's surprisingly hard, like clutch on a stage. If something's going to go, just let the spelling go. So our integrity is the difference between who we are when everyone can see us and who we are when no one can see us. Now, let's remember something else about David here in this moment. His character's under pressure. He's been on the run, pushed to the margins. He's experiencing all kinds of trials and challenges. Now, something happens to us when pressure... is exerted upon who we are. Now, when we experience pressure, something actually happens. The deeper character, our private character, the who we are when no one else can see us, gets pushed upwards. And so that deeper character is now right at the surface. And this is why when things are going really bad for us, sometimes we respond in a different way. You know, the most simple way I can think of this, anyone ever heard of the term hangry? (laughs) Right? You're really hungry, then you get angry. Now, I don't want to be too harsh, but hanger may be a revealer of something going on a little bit deeper. So sometimes when pressure is exerted upon us, the difference between those two things is revealed. Now, here's what I love about David. And here's what I love about his character under pressure. And we're going to see it revealed as we continue in this passage. But in this moment, in this season of David's life, his integrity is right up here. There is very little difference between who he is in the public, in full view of the armies of Israel, and who he is deep in the back of the cave where no one can see what he's doing. None of the soldiers, none of the commanders, not even the king, no one can see who he is back in that cave. But here's the decision that he makes. Let's head back to the scripture. And we're going to go to, could we go back, sorry guys at the back, to that, that first, first scripture. And we're going to pick it up again in verse 4, where I, where I made you stop reading. So David and his men were far back in the caves. We skip, uh, that's the one? Yeah, beautiful. They were far back in the caves. Hopefully we're getting there. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's rope. He's sneaky, sneaky. Now afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Saul, after all, was still the king. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So for David in this moment, there was a very clear right decision and wrong decision. In his mind, in his heart, the wrong decision was to harm Saul. Saul, incidentally, at this point, is, uh, is David's father-in-law. Through that meteoric rise of fame, David married Saul's daughter, became a father-in-law. David now is also he has a huge sense of national love for Israel, and to, to attack the king was completely off who God was calling him to be. And then also he had this incredible sense of faithfulness to who God was. And for him to kill Saul in some way might have been manufacturing God's promises on his own. So David says, no, I won't do it. 
So deep in the cave, in the dark, in the private, David has this incredible choice of character. You know, there's something I love about this picture as followers of Jesus. And even as we think about that picture of the cave, that one of the questions we need to start asking ourselves is what's going on deeper in the cave? Deeper in the cave of the heart and of the soul. You know, a few months ago, I had the, the chance to go with my family and some friends uh, to a cave down south called Nilgi Cave. Did I say that right? Nilgi? Anyone been to Nilgi Cave? I'm just going to assume I'm saying that right, unless anyone corrects me. Correct me after the service, not now. For the sake of other people, it'll be awkward. Uh, so we went to this place called Nilgi Cave. And uh, it's a natural cave, and then they, they built stairs down so you can go down and explore this incredible place. And you go down the first flight of stairs, and there's still plenty of sunlight pouring in through the opening of the cave. And then you go through another flight of stairs and go deeper into the cave. And you still see the daylight coming through, but it's getting dimmer and dimmer. And then you go down the next flight of stairs, and it's just complete darkness. And it's as if there was never an opening in the cave. And if you're mildly claustrophobic, you start to panic. Now, fortunately, there's little lanterns for the purpose of tourism spread out so you can see and not have a panic attack. But, but the point is, as you get deeper, the impact of the daylight gets less and less and less until it's completely gone. Now, sometimes that can be a picture of my heart and soul. Sometimes that can be a picture of our hearts and souls. And when it comes to character formation within who we are as followers of Jesus, or even if you don't believe in Jesus, one of the most powerful things we can do around character formation is look deeper into who we are. Look beyond where the light touches and access a deeper part of who we are and begin to ask the question, what's going on in this place? Who I am when nobody's looking? You know, what we need to learn to do is shine the light deeper into our hearts. You know, there's a wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And I think I might have prepared it earlier for you. I did. It says, this is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Another translation says, and the light of Christ will shine upon you. And I love this thought of what does it take for us to allow the light of Jesus to penetrate deeper into our hearts? You know, I think there's some tangible things that we can actually do here. It's a phrase that I love and I don't want to ever stop talking about. is having courageous conversations. Having conversations with people that you trust about the deeper realities of what's happening in your soul. That sometimes in the depths of the cave, we find things that feel overwhelming to deal with. We need to learn to grow to become people that can include others in that journey and say, would you be with me? Would you process with me what I've discovered about myself deep in the cave of who I am? You know, another thing that I'm so passionate about is activating mentoring relationships. You know, most of us will have people in our lives that can be mentors for us, that can bring shape to who we are, that can bring formation to who we are. Find that person in your life when it comes to character formation. Find that person in your life that's going to encourage you to make wise decisions as a parent, to make loving decisions as a spouse, to make ethical decisions in your business and workplace. Who are those people that are enriching and positively forming character in your life? Now, we have a hesitation to allow people into those places. And if we just accept that and continue living with a hesitation 
we continue to live without allowing the light to shine in the deeper places of who we are. And if we operate like that, it's only going to be a matter of time before some kind of pressure brings it all to the surface anyway, and it comes out in ways that are not helpful for you or the people around you. So David, deep in the cave, he deals and battles with this issue of character. And we know that he cuts off this little corner of the robe. Let's see what he does next. Actually, before we go to the next thing, I want to highlight something real quick. I think we've got time for this. In verse 5, after David cuts off the corner of the robe, it says that he was conscience-stricken for having cut off just the corner of the rope, overwhelmed by his conscience. And let's, let's just be clear, he didn't hurt Saul, he didn't, he didn't kill Saul, he didn't imprison Saul, he just cut off a corner of his robe. Yet David is just overwhelmed by his conscience, and he stops his men, he rebukes them, he says, no, you can't hurt him, can't harm him. Now it's going to play out in this story why David did this. But he feels a sense of guilt even for taking the corner of the Lord's anointed Saul, his robe. Now, there's something about David's conscience that I think actually is really important in this passage. Now, David had a conscience that wasn't impacted again by the situation that he found himself in. He had a conscience that wasn't impacted by the emotions that he was feeling. He had a conscience that wasn't impacted by the voice of the men around him. He had a conscience that was calibrated in a certain way. And his conscience was calibrated around who God was and being faithful to God and having trust in God's plan and what God was doing in his life. Now, I love this idea of calibrating our conscience. Now, let's say, let's say I'm going to make a bad decision in my life. Uh, a bad decision, I'm going to treat someone badly. Uh, I'm going to respond to a situation badly. I'm going to go do that this afternoon. I'm not really, it's just hypothetical. But let's say I'm going to make a bad decision. I think there's two ways that I come to make bad decisions in my life. The first way is this. I think about a bad choice and my conscience activates. Let's say, for example, church is finished. You guys, you, you've all gone home. You're going on with your Sundays. I'm here by myself. And let's say I find $200 cash on the floor. Let's say that's the scenario. No one else is looking. I'm deep in the cave. The auditorium lights are off. And I see that money and my conscience activates and I says, I need to take that upstairs. I need to message some of the other staff and say, hey, I've just found some money. I need to work out how to get that money back to whoever it belongs to. My conscience activates and says that. Then another part of me activates and says, ooh, $200, that could be fun. I could do some stuff with that. Now, hopefully, quite quickly, I'm able to listen to my conscience say, no, that's not my money, that belongs to someone else, I'm going to return it to who it belongs to. So if I make a bad choice, here's the first thing that happens. I ignore my conscience. So my conscience triggered and I've decided to ignore it because of some other reason, like money being nice. So I ignore my conscience. Now, here's the other way I can make a bad decision that my conscience is calibrated in such a way that a bad decision doesn't register as a bad decision in my mind and in my heart. Now, this is the scarier one, right? This is the scarier one. So if I've allowed my conscience to be calibrated in such a way that bad decisions no longer register as bad decisions, or oh, that hurts parts of my heart even saying it out loud. 
And I hope it does for you as well, because I think God wants to speak something and impress something on this. Now, here's the thing. What we need to be mindful of, prayerful of, is what are the things that are shaping my conscience? Now, there's some realities around here that we could probably all brainstorm. What impacts our conscience? The broader culture that we're a part of, I think definitely. The microcultures we're a part of in our workplaces, our families, our sporting clubs, our different communities. Those microcultures will have an impact on shaping the boundaries of conscience. The media that we engage in, the music we listen to, all of these things will have a shaping impact on our conscience. And this is important to be aware of because here's my thought process around it. So in a lot of ways, our conscience provides the boundaries for our behavior. And our conscience provides the framework for what our character is ultimately going to become. And I'm going to make the assumption that, that, that we're here, we're people, that when our conscience triggers, we want to respond to it and, and do what we believe in that moment is the right thing. So here's the thing question we've got to ask ourselves with crystal clarity, what is my conscience calibrated around? For David, his conscience is calibrated around who his God is. And with a heart of faithfulness towards his God, regardless of the circumstances. My suggestion that as we allow the light of Christ to run deeper into our hearts, we actively choose to have our conscience calibrated and centered on who Jesus is. So if our conscience is calibrated on other things, we need to make some adjustments. We need to go back to the New Testament. We need to go back to prayerfulness and say, Jesus, who are you forming me to become? How is my life calibrated around who you are? So David, after cutting off the robe, he emerges from the cave. Saul now walking down to his army. And in verse 8... David says this, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. Remember, Saul is David's father-in-law. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. And now David's endgame with the robe cutting comes out. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you but you are hunting me down to take my life. I'm just going to get rid of this. You know, I love this this final exchange between Saul and David at this time because we see what David's heart is. Now, as Saul came into that cave, I think David had three basic options as to how he would respond to Saul. The first option could be defined by this, is that David could give Saul justice. Now, justice for Saul, after all of this nonsense, at worst, would be putting to death, exactly what David's men suggested. At best, imprisoning him and maybe instigating and triggering a coup to take on the rightful kingship of Israel. That would have been justice for Saul at this moment. He was way off base. He had completely forgotten about God, completely rejected God, and unjustly pursuing David. Justice for Saul, 
I think probably would have been David taking his life. That's option one. Of course, David doesn't do that. David had another option. He could give mercy to Saul. You know what mercy is? It's not giving someone what they deserve. So David could have said, okay, we're just going to let him go. No one touch him. He's, he's God's anointed. He's still the king. I'm not king yet. God hasn't made me king yet. We're just going to let him leave the cave. And then Saul would have gone on his way. David and his men could have escaped. That would have been David extending mercy to Saul, not giving him what he deserved. But David does something completely different. And it's captured in this whole dynamic of cutting off the robe and coming out of the cave and holding it before Saul. Because David didn't want to give Saul justice. He didn't want to just give Saul mercy. David wanted to extend something else to Saul. He wanted to give him grace. He wanted to renew, restore, and repair the relationship between himself and Saul. So he did the hardest thing. He sneaked his way to Saul. Incredibly high-risk maneuver. Cut off the corner of his robe so he could prove to him that his heart was for him. And he gave him grace with a heart for renewal. I'm going to invite the, the whole team to come and join us. And we're going, to, we're going to continue to worship God in a few moments. But just before we do this, I want to take your heart to two places this morning. That as David makes this choice, he makes the choice to live out grace. He's been persecuted by Saul, pushed to the margins by Saul, attacked by Saul, yet still David lives out grace. You know, in my mind, probably the number one place that character is revealed is our treatment of other people. Would, would anyone agree with that? It's, it's how we respond to situations, sure. There's other, other complexities we could add into it. But I think so much of it can just be summarized. How are you treating other people? And David here in this moment had every right to punish, to reject, to send him away. But his heart is to restore relationship and restore friendship. David's carrying a huge amount of forgiveness, like a crazy amount of forgiveness. Saul was his father-in-law. He was his friend. David would go and play the harp for him when he was having bad days. There's all that pain, all that rejection, all that betrayal. And David can forgive. You know, I think sometimes forgiveness is one of the, the strongest character-forming things that we can do. That everything in our human heart says people deserve justice. If they wrong me, I wrong them. That's justice. If they hurt me, I hurt them. Maybe sometimes we can grow towards mercy. They are, oh, they hurt me. I'll just let them go on, do their thing, and I'll just avoid them. But grace is something different. Grace is a heart of renewal. It says, I desire restoration between myself and who you are. You know, it could be for some of us this morning that the thing that's causing some problems deep in the back of the cave of our heart and that private character is just issues of unforgiveness. And perhaps today is the day where it's time to let light shine on that reality. And like David, do the hardest thing and process that and forgive. But here's the great encouragement. 
And here's why I know we're able to do this when we understand what Christ has done for us. See, David in that cave had those three options, justice, mercy, grace. When God looks at my life, he had those same three options. Because of my sin, because of who I am in myself, God could have said, that sin needs to be punished. I'm just going to leave you caught up, lost in your sin, not knowing the fullness of life that I have you. You've made bad choices, that's on you. Of course, God doesn't do that. Sometimes we think that all God does for us is mercy. He says, your sins cancelled out on the cross. You're not going to get the punishment that you've deserved. Now, if we leave the gospel at that, we have horrendously cut short what Christ has done for us. Because Christ doesn't just give us mercy and say, I'll protect you from the cost of sin. Christ gives us grace and says, you are in the family of God. You are renewed in the family of God. You are restored in the family of God. You are co-heirs with me. You are in the same line of kingship as David and Jesus when you put your faith in Christ through faith. That's what grace is. It's like you're not caught up in that life anymore. I'm not just forgiving that life, but I'm setting you free to take hold of the fullness of life. That is the hand of God's anointing on you. We can't let our situations rob that away. We can't let the voices of others rob that away. And we allow that to be the slab of character in the very base of the cave of our heart that I am renewed and set free by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus. His name is unbreakable and my faith can be unbreakable in Him. Can we stand together? I'd love to pray for you. If you're joining us online and this message is resonating with you, whatever room you're in, whatever space you're in, I want to invite you to stand as well. And we're going to pray together as the church and ask the Holy Spirit of God to do something significant in the place of the heart this morning. If that's you, I want to invite you just to close your eyes. If that's you, I want to invite you to hold your hands out. Maybe you want to stretch your hands high. Maybe you want to take a knee. Whatever you need to do just to ingrain yourself in the presence of God. Jesus, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is here. Jesus, I pray that in this moment, the light of who you are would shine deep into our hearts, Lord God. God, for those of us that need to process some things, for those of us that need to have conversations around forgiveness, Jesus, I pray that your grace would be close to us. God, for those of us that need to process perhaps poor decision-making, God, I ask that by your grace, you would calibrate our conscience and do a fresh work of formation within each one of us, Lord God. Jesus, I pray that our lives would be calibrated around who you are in a brand new way today. God, I ask for that in your name and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I pray that you would bring renewal. Jesus, we thank you that deep in the cave, you bring us grace. That deep in the cave, you don't bring us punishment. You go further than mercy. You bring us grace. And Jesus, I pray that we would know that grace overflowing in our lives. And that grace overflowing in our lives would be a catalyst for transformation in who we are as followers of you, Lord. Jesus, I pray for young and old disciples to begin following you in spirit and in truth, in power by your Holy Spirit. 
Jesus, would you do more in each one of us, we pray. God, we thank you for the power of your presence. And as we worship together in these moments, I ask that you would continue to speak. God, we're here to bring you glory. We're here to bring you praise. We're here to lift your unbreakable name above every broken situation. We praise you, God, and we worship you. Come on, church.